Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I come before you completely powerless. Lord, there is no strength that I have in and within myself that can change people, that can freshly lead people to become like your son Jesus. And yet we acknowledge this morning that we don't come alone. We come in the power of your Holy Spirit with your very presence amongst us. And so we ask, Lord, would you open our eyes this morning? Would you help us to hear your word? Would you help us to understand something more about your son Jesus today? And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a question. And the question is, have you ever found yourself discouraged in mission? Have you ever found yourself really feeling discouraged? Maybe you've been trying to reach out to a friend and share Christ with them. And you've just found time and time again, no response. It's fruitless. Maybe you've been trying to be a faithful witness in your workplace and you're just finding it tough and you, and you, and you feel like you're, you, you're not seeing any fruit. Uh, you know, recently, uh, I've been feeling the same about my work in the city. You know, I work uh, two days a week uh, currently at uh, St. Vincent's uh, in Darlinghurst in the city and I've been working there uh, nearly four years now and uh, it's a long commute you know, I'm on the 628 train all the way in into the city, and um, 
And I find there uh, in the city at St. Vincent's people with hard hearts, people that live deeply uh, non-Christian lifestyles and, and people that are transient, coming and going, people that live a long way away from Charlotte and I in Waitara and I found few successes and, and uh, I sometimes find myself asking the question, you know, am I being faithful? Am I being faithful? Am I being effective? Am I really being effective in my, in my efforts to, to reach out to my, to my friends and my colleagues? And, and what I found in my own personal life is over time you kind of get this thing called, this thing called mission drift. Where, where you start to drift away from the initial passion that you once had to, to see people come to the Lord. And I've just found my heart drifting into just, just trying to finish the, the details of my job and, and that's it. And kind of losing hope in seeing people's lives be changed by, by the power of the gospel. And, and, and I don't know if you relate to that. That sense of discouragement and mission and that sense of drift away from a passion that maybe at one point in your life was so clear and now you find it weakened. If that's you, I just felt in preparing for this morning that the Lord wants us to help refocus on mission. You see, this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is a passage which is actually primarily about Jesus. And it's primarily about who he is and his mission specifically. But as we examine Jesus this morning in his mission, I think we're going to see some important lessons from him in his example, his model. And that is our passage, though, at first glance, something quite peculiar contains a powerful visual lesson. Jesus Christ, the great teacher in our passage this morning, is visually illustrating for for this small audience something about his mission. And so I've entitled this morning's message, A Model for Mission. And really, Uh, two simple points that we're going to be looking at uh, today, this morning. We're going to begin by looking at the mission that we see in this passage. And and then secondly, in the second half, I want to look at the model and glean some things that we can learn from uh, Christ in his model. But really the big heart is that this morning we would see his beautiful model for mission. I think Jesus Christ is trying to illustrate something for us, trying to model something for us. And we really need to dig into our passage this morning in order to be able to see it. And so let's begin with point one, the mission specifically. You know, you might be sitting here this morning and you're not convinced that this passage is actually about mission. Um, But if you take with me a deeper look... Uh, at this passage, I think we will see that there's several clues that reveal mission really is key to understanding what is occurring here in, in our passage. And the first clue that we get that mission is really the focus of what we're looking at this morning is simply in the context of the passage. 
You see, uh, right back at the beginning of this chapter, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus had encountered the, the Pharisees, and it was an explosive encounter. Uh, the criticism that the Pharisees immediately give to Jesus is they observe that his disciples don't follow their traditions. The Pharisees have these rules and traditions uh, that their elders and other rabbis and teachers have been following for many years, traditions that, that are not in the Bible, but traditions that are about making yourself clean, traditions that are about cleanliness. And Jesus addresses them so powerfully. We saw two weeks ago, Jesus says, you guys, you guys don't follow this word. You give lip service to this word, but your hearts are far from this word. You are more interested in following your own rituals than you are listening to the word of God. More than that, Jesus explains to these Pharisees about uncleanness and defilement and explains to them that uncleanness and defilement uh, doesn't come from following ritual or failing to follow ritual. Uncleanness and defilement comes from within. It comes from the heart. And because uncleanness and defilement comes from the heart, washing your hands does nothing to fix it. Washing your hands does not address the underlying issue. And Mark moves to help us understand what Jesus has been teaching about defilement and what makes us clean by giving us two miracles that really unpack this theme, that unpack and help to illustrate and, and explain what makes us clean. How do we find cleanness? How do we, how do we address our heart condition? And last week we saw that, that Jesus leaves his hometown and moves to the pagan Gentile territory of Tyre and Sidon. And he encounters at this place this unclean woman, this Syrophoenician woman, a woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, a pagan, and she bursts into the room and begs Jesus to heal her daughter who is demon-possessed. And she demonstrates for us remarkable faith in her humble request. And her daughter is healed. And we see that it's her faith that leads to the cleansing of her daughter, and not any ritual that she performs. Well, this week, Mark is out to further explain this principle of cleanliness and what makes us clean this week with a really unusual miracle in Decapolis. Why don't you read with me uh, again in verse 31, the beginning of our passage. It says the following. Then he, that's Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. See, Mark here is summarizing for us the next few months of Jesus' journey. Having finished in Tyre, he travels 20 kilometers to the north to Sidon and then loops around, back around down to the sea uh, within Decapolis. And Decapolis is, once more, largely Gentile territory, largely pagan territory. Decapolis refers to a broad area, a collection of roughly 10 cities that had formed an allegiance. And that's what Decapolis means. Uh, Deca, 10, 
polis, city, ten cities. So Jesus moves back into this uh, pagan Gentile territory. You see, Jesus had actually already been here previously. Uh, We read about Jesus' first encounter with the capitalists back in chapter 5, where he heals the demoniac. And Jesus finds that as he comes and performs this great miracle and cleanses this man with 6,000 demons, that he gets a poor reception. He is poorly received. He is, in fact, asked to leave. In Mark chapter 5, verse 17, Mark writes, And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might come with him and be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. You see, the demon-possessed man is instructed by Jesus to go back to the Decapolis, where he's from, and preach the good news about Jesus. And here we have in our passage Jesus back in pagan Gentile territory, literally in the land of Lebanon, an unclean land with unclean food. The people he'd been interacting with before were pig farmers. Pigs, for for Jews, are unclean animals. And previously, in response to the miracle Jesus had performed, they'd been fearful of Jesus, so much so that they'd kicked him out. And this time, Jesus returns with what we can only assume is a notable reputation. We can speculate that this demon-possessed man had possibly been spreading the news about Jesus so much so that he now has this notable reputation and the, cl- the crowds, rather than imploring him to leave, are now flocking to him, having heard about his healing ministry and the new age he was coming to usher in. And what we read next in our passage is, is just remarkable. So why don't you read with me verses 32 down to 35 once more. It says, verse 32, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Afatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And here's this beautiful scene. The crowd is pressing in, and, and, and Jesus, having had this man brought to him, pulls him aside. You know, the text says he, he literally thrusts his, ear, uh, his fingers into his ears, and, and we can assume he spits then on his fingers and, and touches his tongue. And he looks up to heaven and he gives this sigh and and speaks these words, be opened, and and suddenly he's healed. It's kind of bizarre, isn't it? Something so unusual about what Jesus done and yet there's something so significant about it as well. There's something very significant about what is happening in this moment. And that's where we come across our second clue 
which is really a key passage that, that Mark is pointing us to right here in our passage. And that is Isaiah chapter, chapter 35. The key that we see this uh, pointing to is that this deaf man, or this man is specifically deaf, and it says in your Bibles, had a speech impediment. The word in Greek is mogilalos. It's a really very rare word that occurs only one other occasion in the whole of the Bible. And that is uh, in this passage in Isaiah 35. The word means to have difficulty speaking or, or to be mute. And in fact, we see that our passage is filled with references to Isaiah 35. The context in Isaiah 35 that we're going to be looking at is that Isaiah had been speaking about God's judgment against the nations, his judgment against Tyre and Sidon and Egypt and Eden and Lebanon and Assyria and Israel and Jerusalem. And having talked about God's judgment, he now takes a turn to describe this beautiful message of hope. Um, If you have your Bibles, flick back to Isaiah chapter 35. And I'm going to read from verse 1. Isaiah writes, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. Isaiah writes, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Desert wilderness, Isaiah describes. Desert wilderness, land that is symbolic of God's judgment. Land that is sparse and bare and and lacking in any fruitfulness will become like the Garden of Eden itself. It will blossom with flowers. People will live there and they will dance and they will sing. The glory of places like Lebanon, the Decapolis, where they in fact are in this moment. The glory of places like Mount Carmel, that is in Judah, or the fertile plains of Sharon near the Sea of Galilee, will be given to it. The land, desert land, a place of God's judgment will become this beautiful Eden-like place. How? The glory of the Lord, verse 2. The majesty of God himself is returning. God himself is returning. But when will it happen? When will it be? Well, Isaiah gives us some signs, some things to look out for, for when this day is coming. He says in Isaiah 35, 5-6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Then the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Then the tongue of the mute, Mogilalos, shall sing for joy. The sign, the deaf will hear. The sign, the mute, Mogilalos, will speak. 
just as they do now. You see, our passage is the revelation of the glory of God himself who is returning. There is coming a new creation where lands of waste, wastelands will be deserts, will be turned into paradise, where, where disease and disability will lead to praise and singing. And it's being ushered in by Jesus. He's bringing this new age where the curse of this world will be reversed, where a glorious change will begin. And Jesus in this moment is bringing it in. And we as Christians wait its completion on his return. But if you think that's all there is, there's an even greater truth that lies at the heart of this revelation, this this great sign that, that Jesus is pointing to. And we see it as we read the rest of this chapter, verses 8 through to 10. Read with me. Isaiah says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Listen to this. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools... They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You know, Isaiah says this, this sign is pointing to the coming of a highway. And this highway is going straight to Zion. You see, Zion in the Bible is a symbol of where God's presence was. It's the site of the temple. It's where God himself dwelt. And, and, and Isaiah is saying a highway is coming. A level, straight, wide easy to navigate on and travel on path straight into the presence of God himself. It's, it's a way, Isaiah says, you won't get lost on. It's a way where there'll be no wild animals to attack you. It's a way, and I love this in verse 8, he says, even they are, if they are fools, they shall not go astray. It's a way, even if you're an idiot, you won't go astray on, Isaiah says. It's a highway straight into the presence of God. But who is it for? Who is this path for? Well, verse 8 again. It's a way of holiness. It's a way for the clean. That's what this revelation is all about. He's the coming king. And he's bringing this highway of holiness a restored creation with a way back to be with God once more. An unclean people, Jesus is with in this moment, announcing a highway of holiness. You see, Jesus in the coming chapter would go go on to say in Mark 8.31, it says that he began to teach to them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, Jesus had come to die. He had 
come to lay down his life to make a highway of holiness. In Mark 10:45 it says or Jesus says for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He'd come to be the ransom. He'd come to pave the way of the highway of holiness with his perfect life to live the life that we should have lived to die the death that we alone deserve and as he hung on the cross and cried out in agony it's finished he paid the ransom in full he made the way for this highway of holiness. Read who can travel on it, so that the, verse 9, redeemed shall walk there. So that, verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord could return. It's the gospel. You see, Jesus' sign is pointing to a great message about what he's come to do for us. And that is that that the way to get right with God is not through going to church. It's not through being good. It's not through rituals. It's not through hand-washing. It's not through obedience to laws. That's That's what the Pharisees believed. It's simply through trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross. See, the message of our passage is that Jesus had come to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 35, a mission to rescue unclean people to bring them back into relationship with God. This is the mission, and this is our first point. Well, not just point one, the mission, but point two, the model. You see, though our passage primarily points to the mission of Jesus, the king who's come to bring the way of holiness, Jesus in our passage also models mission for us in the way he approaches this healing. You see, these past two miracles are really a kind of precursor to Acts. And Jesus uh, going out into these Gentile pagan uh, territories to preach the good news about what he's come to do to heal the sick and, and, and to proclaim the kingdom of God is really a picture of what the disciples would later turn themselves to do, to go out and spread the news of the kingdom of God beyond the land of Israel. And so as we look at Jesus in his example, really we see him modeling for us a few different aspects of his mission, things that we can glean for ourselves in the way he performs this specific healing and in his example that are really models for us as we think about mission. I've got three simple things that we see as we closely example Uh, follow his example and this specific healing. And the first is his care. The Savior's care. You know, it's really an unusual healing on one level, isn't it? Really weird. I mean, what's it all about? Why the the finger pointing? Why the, the thrusting of the fingers in the ears and then spitting and touching his tongue and looking up and sighing? I mean, what's it all about? And Jesus in this moment is healing a deaf man. This man had suffered from 
significant disability. He can't hear. And so Jesus in this moment is visually showing him what he is about to do. He is visually showing him what this miracle points to. This healing is a visual illustration. And it's not only for this man, but also for us as we join in his mission. Read with me again verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. You know, we can assume that it's friends of this man or family members who bring him and they come and they just beg him. This man with his disability would have suffered from significant shame and disgrace and his speech impediment would have caused him to have serious humiliation. You know, uh, there's a uh, colleague of mine that works at St. Vincent's, uh, the hospital I work at, who has a stutter. And so whenever he's on... uh, uh, under pressure, he has this significant stutter. And often I will come across the desk of the nurse's quarters where he is making a phone order where you call up a physician or a doctor and you take an order for medicine. And uh, he'll be trying to give instruction to this doctor. And all you'll hear is him go, penicillin. And, and, and just finally, after what seems an eternity, get the word out. And, and every time I hear him stuttering away, my heart just breaks for him. Like, like the pain this guy suffers from with his stutter, with his, with his stammer. And, and that's just a small picture of this man and the, 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 the shame he would have felt on multiple occasions from his disability. But notice what Jesus does. He takes him away privately. He takes him away to avoid further shame. In verse 34, we read that then Jesus looks up to heaven and he sighs. The word here is for an involuntary gasp. It's he's distressed by this man's situation. He sees this man and he cares. He's bothered by him. He's moved. The king of glory is moved by this unclean man, this disabled man. I think there's much to learn from Jesus' example. And the question I've been thinking about as I've been meditating on this passage this week is, how much do we care? You know, the message of the Bible is that our neighbors suffer from living against God's way. More that they face eternity condemned without Christ. It's so easy for us to lose proper focus. We begin to care the most about things that matter the least. The relationship we want. The house we want, the renovations we want, the job we want, the baby we want, the holiday we want, the lifestyle we want. It's not wrong to want these things, but it's when we want them the most. 
So much so that we sacrifice the things that matter to get the, uh, the things that matter the most to get the things that matter the least. When we forget that there are people around us suffering, there are people around us perishing, and we focus on the renovation, the holiday, the career. You know, there's so many people in our communities that are lonely, friendless. You know, just even in the place, uh, Waitara Gardens, where, where Charlotte and I live, we, we frequently meet people that are just lonely. I just think of my, one of my neighbours, an older man uh, in his 80s, and He's been hounding me for a cup of coffee, actually. He keeps calling me, asking if we can meet up with another old guy in the building. And he, He's lonely. Wondering what the purpose of his life is in his final years. My next-door neighbour, who's, who's an older lady, who's, who's, a, who's a widow. And she gets very few visitors and... Whenever we knock on her door to talk to her, she'll talk and talk and talk and talk because she's lonely. Who is there in your community that needs care? Where is the deaf and mute man? You know, we are a church that loves this city because because that's what God's called us to do. You know, God calls us to love this city because it's a place filled with people. Millions of people. Millions of people who he loves. You know, our vision is really to be a church that radically impacts the communities we live in. Our neighbours, our family, our friends, our colleagues. People from neighbourhoods like Hornsby and Waitara and Asquith and Normanhurst radically caring for those that are in need. Well, we don't just see in our passage this morning Jesus and his care, but we also see his point two, touch. The Saviour's touch. Read with me verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting... Touched his tongue. You know, Jesus doesn't just stop with feeling compassion. He doesn't just stop and direct someone else like Peter to to do something. Say, hey, Peter, come on, you know, why don't you go and help this guy? That's not what the Savior does. He reaches out and he touches this man. He acts. He's willing to get his hands dirty. You know, fingers in the ear. It's a sign that he will open this man's ears. Spit. I mean, it seems strange to us, unusual to us, that Jesus spits on his fingers. But in, and for an ancient people, spit was often considered something to have medicinal qualities, uh, qualities that could provide healing. And so in this moment, as Jesus spits on his fingers, he indicates to this deaf man that he intends to heal him. And then he takes his finger and touches his tongue. It's a sign that he will speak. 
And friends, in the Gospel of Mark, as we read it, it's not the only example of Jesus really taking the step to move and heal people, but one of many, many examples. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40, right at the beginning, it says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And it says, Jesus moved with pity, stretched out his hand, and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. Again, in the very next verses after our chapter, Jesus has this great crowd gathered around him and he sees that they had nothing to eat and he says to his disciples I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and they've had nothing to eat and he goes on to provide plentiful food for them but you see friends it's so easy to simply feel compassion and then do nothing about it. Kent Hughes puts it this way, and I think it's so convicting what he says of this passage. Kent Hughes says, Here Jesus' handling of the deaf man, his finger thrust in his ears, his spittle anointing the man's flopping tongue, was instinctive and natural. True compassion doesn't just feel. It reaches out. There is very little effect from Christian practice or evangelism which shies away from contact with sin and pain. The surest way to calcify the heart is to fail to do something when we feel compassion. Coldness and hypocrisy are the result. Kent Hughes says, the surest way to develop a hard heart is to feel something and then to ignore it, to do nothing in response. Friends, care without touch is simply wasted sentiment. So who are the people in your life that you care for? And how could you take a step towards touching their lives? Maybe it's something as simple as inviting your neighbor over for dinner. Maybe it's simply coming over to a friend who's been ill and praying for them. Maybe it's starting a group for mums or a wine tasting night or a cycling group or joining an initiative in caring for the poor or hosting a block party or cooking meals for someone doing it tough. Maybe your group could run like an introducing Jesus course and invite your neighbors along. Who are the, what are the needs and, and how can I help? But it's not just his care. And it's not just his touch. But it's also, thirdly, his look. Read with me verse 34. And looking up to heaven... He sighed and said to him, Afatha, that is, be opened. You know, possibly it's one of the most significant actions that people that Jesus performed in this miracle. One of these most significant illustrations that he wanted this man to see. Just before speaking the first word 
that this man would hear. Jesus pauses to show him where the healing would come from. He looks up to heaven. Not by magic. Not from ritual. Not from medicine. But the power of God from heaven. The point is that the power we see in this miracle for mission rests fully with God. And so easy to forget. You know, how are you feeling about your efforts to introduce people to Jesus? You know, it's so easy to feel discouraged. I mean, that's what, that's what I was feeling and, and have been feeling. What effect am I having? At work, I shared with you guys before that the example of hard hearts with little fruit and, and, and if you're feeling that same sense, you know, I just want to say I relate to that. That's my experience. But the power rests with God. The power comes from God and he is able. Just like this deaf man, we all need Jesus to open our ears. Jesus, just earlier in chapter 7, it says that he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. We can't hear apart from the power of God. Even miracles are not enough to cause someone to hear. Read with me verse 36 of our passage. It says, And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond all measure, saying, He has done all things well. Even even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus charged them not to tell anyone. Jesus, in this moment, is not just playing. He's not just messing with them. He, it says literally, he gave them orders. He expressed in no uncertain terms what they must do. And they were astonished beyond measure, but directly disobeying him. There is no indication that these people are actually, in reality, following him. Because, you see, salvation requires God's Miraculous power to open the ears of the deaf. His look reminds us that we must be a praying people. We must be a people of prayer. You know, it's been so good to see the way in which people have been praying in this church for introducing Jesus, our latest course. You know, and every time we run this course in the lead up, I lack faith that anyone will come. And every time I lack faith, God meets my faith with power. God meets my, my lack of faith with answered prayer. You, know, you can be amazed by Jesus and, and, and still not have saving faith. You can be amazed by him and all he's done and still not be willing to trust your life in him. And guys, you know, on Tuesday night, we just saw so many people deeply affected. You know, I was reminded afresh on Tuesday night that God had clearly already been working in each of these people for so long. And I'm just in the cheap seats, 
going along for the ride, like, you know, hanging off the back of the van on roller skates, you know, just being pulled along. Like, that's what it feels like to me, like just being in the presence of what God is already doing. Because we're completely dependent upon his power, his look, his care, his touch. Well, in closing, the mission of our passage is that Jesus has come to rescue an unclean people and to bring them back into relationship with God. And Jesus models this mission for us through his care, his touch, and his look. Friends, this is a beautiful model for mission. When I pray for us in closing. Lord, we just want to pause this morning and thank you for Jesus thank you for his incredible mission thank you that this passage in this healing of this deaf and mute man we see that he's the one who's coming to bring the highway of holiness to bring a path by which we can come back into relationship with you that he is beginning a work of reforming all things this creation which is under the judgment of God, reforming it back to what it was and more, restored. The deaf hearing, the mute speaking, no more sickness, no more disease, just relationship through faith with you, our God. And we also want to thank you for your model, your example, the way in which you model for us what this mission looks like the way in which you model for us care. Oh Lord, we so often find it hard to care. And yet you are a beautiful example. Your touch, Lord, sometimes we care and we fail to get involved. We sit back and yet you move forward. And your look, illustrating to this man that the power comes from you. The power comes from heaven. What care, what compassion, what an example. Lord, would you help us change us to be like your son. And pray this in his name. Amen.